Alive and Kicking on News Talk with Benelin Day and Night Tablets. 24 hour cold and flu relief. Always read the label. Ask your pharmacist for advice. Yes, you can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire's Lair. Coming up this morning, the Future Proofing Personalised Health Index is led by an independent panel of global health policy experts and measures a country's performance. I'll be joined by one of the panel, Dr Nina Burns, to find out how Ireland ranked and why we need to consider a more person-centred healthcare system. I'll also be joined by Tanya Knott, Director of the Sarah Jennifer Knott Foundation, to explain a little a bit more about what needs to happen to get our healthcare system there and how it might have impacted her sister's cancer diagnosis and treatment had we had the system in place. I'll also be joined by TV favourite Mary Kennedy who has penned a book with her sister Deirdre Nicanaja who runs a retreat on one of the Aran Islands. The book is called Journey to the Well, Connecting to Celtic Ways and Wisdom. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, it was a bit of a once in a lifetime kind of week in that I spent a few days in Dubai. One of my best friends has a sister who lives there and she's been saying to myself and another pal that we should go and stay with her. I kicked up a fuss, gave all the reasons I shouldn't go. Why do we do that? Money, work, kids, all valid reasons, I suppose, but all workable when you come down to it. We finally booked and then... You might have heard of a pandemic that kicked off and caused the world to stop. So after moving the flights twice, we finally got to go during the week and I couldn't quite believe it was happening until we were on the plane, especially with the new hoops of testing, etc. that we have to jump through these days. But we made it and it was literally like stepping into another world. You would be conflicted about the goings on of Dubai. The opulence at every turn is perhaps not what the world needs right now. And you are conscious of the class divide between those serving and those being served. But look, it's a bubble. Everything works efficiently, looks beautiful and is spotless. It's also new and man-made that while you do miss the rugged coastline, you still marvel at the engineering. It's almost like a brand new New York plunked into the middle of the desert. Maria and Simon were our hosts and they had things planned for us every day. So I was just a bit like a sheep going from one incredible experience to the next in the sunshine, feeling very lucky. I did mention the negative PCR test that I had to have to get on the plane, but there is mask wearing in Dubai, even outside. But other than that, life continues as normal. Bars, restaurants, nightclubs, all open, no COVID certs, no nothing. I mean, there are hand sanitizers about, but it certainly feels like life living alongside the virus, which is very different to what appears to be happening here. This one, this whole talk of COVID and Christmas and restrictions is almost harder than the first time around, all with that initial fear we had when COVID first came along. Because I think we feel we've done everything we were supposed to do and yet it still hangs over us like a cloud. So it's digging deep territory again and maybe due to vaccines and reports of changing to an epidemic and the idea we had reached the light at the end of the tunnel caused people to wash their hands a little less or not bother to get tested because they felt their symptoms were a cold. I think this time, I hope this time, the heave won't be as big, the wait won't be as long. So try not to let all the negativity get in on you. Just control what you and your lot are doing as best you can and let's ride it out. Or maybe 
That's just the voice of someone filled with enthusiasm after a break in the sunshine. Things I also loved this week was Adele telling Oprah that it's not her job to make people feel good about their bodies. She has felt her body be objectified since the start of her career. She was too big, now she's too small. It's all the same and she doesn't like that her weight loss may have made some people feel bad about themselves. But she says she was body positive then and she's body positive now. And I absolutely love her. I also loved, and it's Oprah again. I seem to overdose on Oprah this week. Her retirement certainly seems to be a glorious handpicking of the best gigs, really. Good on her. She was interviewing Will Smith about his memoir, Will. It's on Apple TV and I really enjoyed it. He goes through some of the major points in his life and his career and the lessons he's learned through experience. So it's borderline self-helpy, but not in an annoying way, if that means anything. I am definitely putting the book on my Christmas list. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. The Future Proofing Personalised Health Index, which is led by an independent panel of global health policy experts, has just been published for this year. Its findings hope to evolve the healthcare system globally from a one-size-fits-all approach to more target and patient-centric, providing the right intervention to the right patient at the right time. To explain a little more and tell us how Ireland fared on the index is one of the panel members, Dr Nina Burns. Nina, you're very welcome. How are you? Hi, Claire. Nina, what can you tell us a little bit about this future proofing personalised health index? What was this this research and, and how did it all come together? Well, so it's um, in collaboration with Roche Pharma and this would be my third year. They've had in they've done an index, uh, I think, three years in a row and looking at different disease each time. So this year was personalised healthcare, and it was really just looking at um, our attitudes towards it and then possibly maybe looking at ways where personalised healthcare can be of benefit um, to the large to larger society in regards to health and, and data sharing and so I was on the Irish panel but actually this isn't just an Irish initiative they have panels across Europe and, and in fact in countries around the world where they look at this. So can you explain what personalised or patient-centred healthcare is? So, you know, it's not necessarily a new idea. It's just a new way of looking at it. I mean, we've always spoken in medicine, you know, when it comes to medication, giving the right medicine to the right person at the right time in the right place and the right dose. It's something that's very much core to, to nursing when they're taught about administering medication. Personalized healthcare is sort of taking that to a higher level in that it, it's not just a medication that we decide to treat uh, a disease with. Like, so, you know, say we say with a sore throat, penicillin is the best drug for certain sore throats. We're actually looking at the drug and saying, is this the best one for you? And it uses very modern methods. Um, they started using it in cancer treatments where basically they look at your DNA, you get the genetics of your cancer. And there are certain treatments they can look at and say, actually, you're likely to do well with this treatment because your genetic profile says you will. And so there are certain treatments that they will only give people who fit a certain profile. Um, and so personalized healthcare is developing rapidly and we hope we'll have more and more of it as time goes on. But it's really making sure that not only are you getting the right treatment for your disease, but you're getting the right treatment for you with that disease, which isn't always the same thing. And how did Ireland fare in the index looking at our healthcare system now? Well, so we varied across the indices. I, I don't have the entire report in front of me, Claire, so I, I can't break down each section. Um, but certainly when they looked at data sharing, which is the area I guess I was interested in, you know, in general Irish people, I think it was only four out of 10 people were happy to have their medical data shared. And I suppose when it comes to personalized healthcare, data sharing is absolutely core to that because you've got to be able to share the information as to what markers on DNA, et cetera, are going to help. 
Um, so that that was the part really that I had focused in on and um, we didn't score so well on that one. Well, overall, Ireland ranked 19th out of 34 um, countries that were in the index. So that's a kind of a middle of the road finding. Um, and it's interesting that you talk about the data sharing, because with GDPR and everything, that has become a big talking point. And in the report, there's a quote from Mary Harney, who was also on the, the panel, um, former Tornish, of course, and Minister for Health. And she says, personalised healthcare is about delivering the right treatment to the right person at the right time. And I would emphasise in the right place. Every citizen's data is valuable. Your data belongs to you, but once shared for science and health purposes, it can be used to deliver better outcomes for you as a patient and better treatments for others. And just even as a normal Joe Soap myself, there's something about data sharing that we just get our, our, our heckles up about. It just feels like we're going into a danger zone. And yet anytime we upload an app on our phone, we're clicking that we say yes to all these terms and conditions. There would have to be a good bit of education around this, wouldn't it? And information to people so they really understand what they're taking part in. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, as you said correctly, you know, it, it, somehow when it comes to health, people think sharing data is dangerous or a dirty word. But actually, you know, as you said, we, we log on to apps all the time that store data on us. We, we use locations on many apps that we have. And while all those terms and conditions pop up, I mean, how many people actually read them word for word? The thing is, when it comes to healthcare, we've always been more careful about information. There are much stricter rules around data in healthcare. And obviously, healthcare providers, they're not sharing data for money or financial benefits. What we're sharing data for is we're trying to improve healthcare, improve treatments. So Absolutely, the regulations have to be there. Don't get me wrong. There would have to be proper, you know, secure ways of doing this. But what people need to understand is that ultimately treatment for disease will improve if we can share data. And again, it's not new. I mean, for years in medicine, we have done trials where we enroll people and we, we run trials where we give them medication. I mean, and publishing of those trials technically is sharing the data of those trials. Personalized healthcare is just taking that to a new level where we can obviously share huge volumes of data because if we can do it virtually and, and we can do it digitally, we can get much more information than having to, you know, enroll 100 to 1,000 people in a trial where they have to be followed up in person. And so, I mean, it can just, it will advance treatment at a much faster pace. And ultimately, it is people on the street who are going to benefit from that. And about advancing healthcare and harnessing the new technologies that are out there, because this personalized approach is not going to help the patient, but the healthcare system as a whole, because the resources will be used in a more targeted and effective manner. And when you're listening to Alive and Kicking on News Talk with Claire McKenna, and I'm talking to Dr. Nina Burns, GP and media medical expert, who was on the panel of experts brought together to look at future proofing personalized health index. And if you'll stay on the line, Nina, I want to bring in Tanya Knott, who is director of the Sarah Jennifer Knott Foundation. Good morning, Tanya. How are you? Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Tanya, tell us a little bit about Sarah, your sister, that you, you set up the foundation in her name. Yeah, my sister Sarah, she died six years ago um, in April and at 31, she was a really fit, young person, uh, never been sick in her life. She was the youngest of four girls. So when she became ill back in April 2013, it was such a shock to us. You know, we didn't think it was anything too bad at the time. She was quite anemic and she was tired and She'd had kind of a lot of irregular bleeds going on. So she was seeing a gynecologist um, and then she was going for procedures. So 
the data of the procedure, I was called in by the consultant to speak with her because they'd found um, they found something suspicious and they wanted to do a biopsy. So again, didn't think anything much of it because she was so young and so healthy. Um, but I was a bit concerned when I got her blood results and things. So I, I, I started to think maybe there was something wrong. So a week later, we went in to get her biopsy results and we couldn't believe when we were told that she had cancer. Um, it was just such a shock, you know, just totally out of the blue. Um, and then we got even more of a shock when the doctor said that it could look like a secondary. So she went on then to have more tests, um, CT scans, and we were kind of backwards and forwards because they weren't quite sure what, what was going on. They, they couldn't really tell. Um, so we were in between doctors. Um, it's like, kind of like this MDT tennis because we, were, we didn't belong anywhere because we didn't have a proper diagnosis. So eventually she went under a medical oncologist and they still weren't sure. Um, but this was now eight weeks into being told she had cancer and still not knowing what type it was. Um, and they, they thought it looked like a lymph lymphoma. So, they, so they'd bring her in and start treatment um, for lymphoma. But then just as she finished her first dose of chemotherapy, her consultant said that the, the pathologist was still not convinced it was a lymphoma. Uh, so they're going to send her biopsy to Boston for further testing. So obviously we were so shocked because we'd got to the stage of starting treatment and we were kind of come to terms with that. Um, and the fact that their diagnosis might still be unknown was such a huge shock. Um, so while we waited for the results to come back, she continued on the lymphoma chemotherapy regime and she was responding really well to that. So I kept saying to her, look, it doesn't matter where the cancer is, you're responding to the treatment and that's the main thing. But unfortunately, about two months after her first diagnosis, um, the results came back and it was a result of cancer of unknown primary. And basically cancer of unknown primary is where the, um, the cells have migrated from the original tumor, but you cannot tell where it started. It's, it's quite, it's like the 10th uh, most common cancer diagnosis at approximately 200 um, cancer types. And it's the fourth largest cause of cancer death in the world. So um, I, that was a complete shock because even uh, my background is I'm a nurse and I'd worked in oncology and I'd never come across cancer of unknown primary myself. So I went searching for information and it was just so difficult to find anything that um, it was a really different trajectory to what our cancer journey we thought we would have been having uh, actually turned out to be. And like anybody who goes through any sort of illness, you have to start to become an expert in terminology and things that you've never come across before. And obviously time is of, of the essence. I mean, you were even, as you're saying, working as a nurse and had never come across this and, and neither had I. So cancer of unknown primary or CUP means that the doctors don't really know what they're dealing with because you're sort of dealing four or five chapters in, if you will, and you don't really know what the, the start off is. And you've set up the foundation to promote awareness, education and research into this area, because in your lovely sister Sarah's case, the testing wouldn't really perhaps impact the prognosis, but it would certainly have helped with her treatment journey because you had to move from specialist to specialist with confused treatment plan and, and no real regular team. Absolutely. It was just such an unusual position to be in because <clears throat> here you are all of a sudden diagnosed with a rare cancer that um, there's no specialist, there's no specialist nurse. Even, even you look at all the information, you just felt like you were completely on your own. And then you're becoming the expert because when you do find the information, you know so much about it. 
And it was even in this age of information to try and find it was really, really difficult until we found um, Cup Foundation in the UK, um, a charity that was set up there. And, you know, I, I, I read a lot of their stuff and I and actually learned so much myself that I had so much knowledge that I set up the foundation because I said, I have to do something with this knowledge. We can't let it go to waste. And I think the first thing I did was make a booklet, an information booklet, because the first thing you need when you're diagnosed is some information. And then as, as, the, organ as the foundation has developed, we have found like where we can make a difference um, in sponsoring research, in education, and trying to bring awareness through practitioners, through patients, through joining people together. We had a recent World Cup Awareness Week where we brought experts from all over the world um, to talk about, and uh, this is where we come in at genomic profiling, because genomic profiling is a huge answer for people with cancer of unknown primary, because in the future, or even what's happening now is it doesn't really matter where the cancer started or, or it, cancer is a disease of the genome, really, not necessarily of the anatomy. Yes, you're trying to get back to that original place where this cancer started, which is why genomic testing is so important. Tanya, how are yourself and your family now, six years on from, from saying goodbye to Sarah? And, and how helpful has the foundation been for turning something so negative into a positive in some way? I think it's been great even just to be able to share that information and to try and kind of do something because she was always so busy fundraising for the Irish Cancer Society and she always wanted to give something back, you know, um, she was just, because we just found out so much, I suppose, she just wanted not to lose this knowledge and to kind of keep on driving the force. And I think when you, um, when you, you, you know, unless you've been through the situation, you don't know the need for genomic profile. You don't need to know about having access to this unless you're going to need it. So I think it's only until you're in the position you realize, oh, why don't we have it? Why don't we have proper structures in Ireland? We really need to have it in place so that patients can access it. So I suppose that's really been a help to try and help share the patient side of the story to try and implement change in Ireland and try and get better access for patients. And Tanya, what age was, was Sarah when she died? 31, just 31, yeah. Wow. And even wow. the average age of cut patients is in the 70s. So it's really unusual to, for, to be somebody so young. But I think um, um, there, it does it happens. All different types of cancers happen to all different ages. So it's just one of these things. And I think by trying to get better treatment and testing for it, it can really be the solution. Well, our absolute condolences to you for something so, so unfair. But as you say, it's happening to so many people and, and families here in Ireland. Tanya Knott, director of the Sarah Jennifer Knott Foundation. Thank you so much for coming on. So can I come back to you then, Dr. Nina Burns, GP and media medical expert who was on the panel for the Future Proofing Personalised Health Index. Talking to Tanya there and, and hearing their experience, genomic testing would have made such a difference and would continue to make a difference in situations like this. So now that we have the impetus, now that we have this research, now that we know this is the way to go, where do we go from here? Well, I think, you know, first of all, I'm so sorry, Tanya, that you and your family went through that. And, you know, that Sarah had such a difficult time with her diagnosis because cancer is so difficult a diagnosis then to actually as she so eloquently said, not being able to have that specialist who deals with just your area is very frustrating. 
I think, I suppose, you know, we, we talk about funding and that certainly is really important. I guess the most important thing is that we have staffing. So we, we absolutely need more consultants because we need more consultants who can then specialise in various areas of interest. And we do have one, uh, an oncologist who specialises in cancer genetics um, in the matter. Um, but we, we need more people doing this um, because this really is the way forwards with cancer. I mean, I actually worked in oncology when I was working in hospital medicine. And as I said back then, you know, if you had breast cancer, you got this chemo. If you had, you know, um, Hodgkin's lymphoma or non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, you got different chemos. But that's not the way it is. And, and as Tanya eloquently said, it's not so much where the cancer starts. It's now they want to look at your tumor, what they call the histopathology and do genetics on it. And they're looking for certain genetic markers that they can say certain treatments will work for that. So certainly when it comes to cancer of unknown primary you know those genetics are so important because you can't just say that this is an ovarian cancer or this is a lung cancer or this is a breast cancer because you don't know where the cancer started you don't know what kind of tissue it started in i mean you know from the pathology point of view they might know certain things about whether it's muscular or glandular or whatever but ultimately the genetics are going to dictate what's the best treatment for that and also by having those genetics and again sharing the data then maybe we'll find maybe it isn't an unknown primary maybe maybe there is a common denominator that triggers these cancers and maybe we just haven't found it but we certainly need more funding more research and most of all we need the doctors to do the treatment the diagnosis to help move us forwards out of this so interesting talking to you both this morning, Dr. Nina Burns, GP and media medical expert who was on the panel of experts brought together to look at future proofing personalised health index and also to Tanya Knott, director of the Sarah Jennifer Knott Foundation. Thank you both very much for talking to me today. Thank you. Coming up after the break, sisters Mary Kennedy and Deirdre Nicanaja on their new book, Journey to the Well. Alive and kicking on News Talk with Benelin Day and Night Tablets, 24 hour cold and flu relief. Always read the label, ask your pharmacist for advice. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, Mary Kennedy is one of Ireland's best known faces from her work on TV, including Nationwide, which she presented for many years. Her sister, Deirdre Nicanaja, runs a retreat on one of the Aran Islands and they came together over lockdown to write a book entitled Journey to the Well, Connecting to Celtic Ways and Wisdom. They join me on the line now. Hello, ladies. How are you? Very well, Claire. Nice to talk to you. This must have been quite a labour of love for the for the two of you, because not only do you talk about the Celtic calendar and the sacred wellness of, of waters, but also you marry it with your own history and, and your own lives. So why did you want to, to work on this book together? When did it first start to be discussed? Um, well, it, it started um, at the beginning of this year and we were in the third lockdown and um, the Hachette, the publishing company that I have worked with in the past, publishing books, um, approached and asked if um, we would be interested in doing the, the project together because they'd um, heard of Deirdre's, you know, um, expertise in Celtic spirituality. And they know me well because we've uh, done a few books together and they just thought it'd be nice. And it was, it was, well, first of all, it was a, a nice lockdown project, but as it went on then, it was a very nice way of exploring our background because we talked about our background in Clondalkin, our experiences of the pandemic, and then relating it to um, the, the, our Celtic DNA, if you like. 
And you do start the book, Deirdre, with a sort of a, an, an ode to our ancestors and that there is so much we can learn from them, not only with our past, but about ourselves and, and how we can we can handle things. Yeah, I think it's really important. I mean, that whole sense of belonging to a tribe, if you like. So uh, we thought that the best place for us to start was with our own family, uh, our own connection to where we grew up, uh, our parents and our grandparents. And I think, you know, when you open the door to looking at the, the kind of wider story that goes uh, behind us, there's an opportunity to bring stuff in to uh, just to acknowledge it to heal it and to kind of move on. And uh, when you think of what we've been through with the pandemic, that's a kind of a real collective thing mm -hmm. we've experienced. And what Mary and I really wanted to do was to make this book very accessible, very grounded in everyday life. And that the spirituality of our everyday and our people and our story is what's uh, important. And what would have been your connection uh, with, with your family and the Celtic calendar growing up? Is this something that has always been a part of your life or something you would have discovered as you got a bit older? Yeah, I don't think it was part of our lives um, to any great extent uh, when we were younger. Um, but we lived on Bridges Road. So at the end of our road was a Bridges Well. So there was a kind of a tradition of making a journey to the well, of recognizing uh, the threshold time around Imbolog, which is her feast day, which is the first of February. And, um, you know, within our community, there was a sense of connecting to stories like that. So uh, for me personally, it was much, much later on when I became interested. And, you know, Mary and I, my mom came to the Aran Islands back in the 80s. And I think it was certainly my first trip. I'm not sure about Mary, but it mm -hmm. had an impact on me. And I kind of felt I'm going to come back to this place and just see what it's like to live here. And it's more an experience then of walking in the footsteps of people who lived here, who kind of journeyed through that Celtic Christian tradition. And that's when I suppose I got very interested in the seasonal uh, impact and journey of, of the Celtic world. And Mary, with your work with Nationwide, would you have seen evidence of that up and down the country? I mean, are there any places that you, you haven't visited at this stage <sighs> and seen evidence of this ritual and this connection to, to our history? Well, there are very few places that I haven't visited, but every one of them um, has a, a special, I suppose, characteristic um, that is unique to itself. But also there are so many uh, qualities that we share in common. Um, as Irish people, as descendants of Celtic people. And I think that's something that uh, sometimes we, we, we're not aware of it. Sometimes we brush it off. Sometimes we may take it for granted, but it is so much part of our DNA. And our wish is that people who read this book would kind of uh, maybe stand a little bit taller, have a, a, a kind of um, give themselves a pat on the back and say, yes, we are. We are warrior people. Our descendants, um, you know, were hunter gatherers. They were people of great um, courage, people of great resilience, people of great creativity and also compassion. I think those qualities are part of our 
makeup. And yes, I have seen them in every part of the, the country that I have visited. Um, I've been to the island uh, many, many times, obviously, and love staying there with Deirdre. And I have a memory um, of when my um, our mother was celebrating her 80th birthday. Uh, we took a trip to the, the island and stayed, uh, myself, Deirdre, my mother and my, my eldest daughter, Eva. And just to mark her 80th birthday, Mommy um, walked up to the top of Dunangus, and that is the, the 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 vivid memory I have of a real connection a between the the female line and Deirdre talks a lot about the divine feminine um, about the female line in our family and also in um, in Irish womanhood and the the strength of it um, and it's something really lovely and everywhere I have been to the country uh, in the country for nationwide and since then for uh, moving west which is a series I did for TG Cahar you come across that the 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 welcome the sense of community the 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 strength of the the people and their um, their their can do attitude. And I think that is very much a part of um, our makeup as Irish people, as Celtic people. Yeah. And which island do you live on, Deirdre? I live on Inishmore. So Inishmore is the biggest of the Aran Islands. There's three of them. And uh, it's on the West Coast. So you come to Rossaville, um, which is about an hour outside Galway, and uh, you can get a boat or a small plane. There's only a nine-seater that will get you across to the island. And uh, there's 800 people living on this island. And then there's 130 on the middle one and about 300 on the small one. And they're, they're all very connected. It's like there's Irish is the first language spoken here. And uh, as Mary was kind of saying, great sense of community, uh, great sense of, I think, people who are guardians of mm. language and culture and tradition. And uh, people say, like, when they step onto the island, the fact that you have to get a boat across or a plane across, it's like stepping into another world. And I, I run a retreat center now, and it's like, it's lovely to see people come and to have time away from the busyness of the mainland and just step into what feels like another world and a neat, real kind of sense of nourishment. And in a way, the island has been like a well for me at very many different times in my life, just to come away and have a bit of time to think and, you know, reconnect or maybe to discern what the next step is. So uh, it feels like a, a lovely, connected, spiritual home. And, uh, you know, I'd love if all my family were here. I'd love if they lived here as well. But maybe we'll all retire here. But it's like <laughs> at the same time, it's, uh, it's lovely to, to feel part of a community um, in a place like this. And when we talk about things like the divine or the Celtic calendar, do you think because we're going through a big change, particularly in this country with our relationship with Christianity and religion and things are changing there, not for everybody, for some people, religion is still a very important part of their lives, but that people seem to be throwing it all away. It's a fascination of mine that people seem to be throwing away all spirituality. And sometimes we're throwing almost the baby out with the bathwater. I think it's a shame, you know, I think that there's no need to do that. Um, I mean, the way we were brought up, Mary and I, in, in um, Clondalkin and with our family story, it was probably, you know, traditional Catholic and, you know, then you move on and you find your own way in the world. But I, I, I too, Claire, feel uh, a sadness to think that, you know, particularly young people, um, because there's great spirit in them and there's great 
kind of, uh, I think, longing to belong. And I kind of feel to reconnect to something that doesn't have to be in the form of any religion or any dogma, but that takes into uh, an acknowledgement and the recognition of the beauty of life and, you know, what's around us in nature in particular. And like in the Celtic world, you know, they didn't actually build temples to their gods because they felt that their god couldn't be contained in a building. So it was, you know, noticing whatever that means to you. I mean, when you go in and you start using the word God, you know, all pe people can have all kinds of reactions, but just that sense of recognizing beauty, uh, recognizing the connection to the seasonal gift of each time for us and, you know, recognizing the rising of the sun, the setting of the sun. So I suppose when we go back into the ancestral story, these were people that were very connected to the land. And in some ways, you know, sometimes when you look at the challenges that particularly for young people they experience, um, it's like maybe maybe coming back and remembering that would kind of open a doorway of, uh, as Mary was kind of saying, connecting to those qualities of resilience and, you know, a belonging, which would be uh, more stable, I think, than what a lot of people uh, talk about, you know, at, at these times. I think there's been a bit of a, a revival of interest and connection to those um, those parts of us that Deirdre has just described um, with the, the pandemic. And I think the, the danger is that we would lose them again as we re-emerge. Although at the moment, it looks as if we're not re-emerging from anything, we have to be very careful. But there was, I mean, we all remember the, the first uh, lockdown and people kind of breathing and slowing down and being conscious of um, the, the, the beauty of their area, of the land or the sea. A lot of people started sea swimming, walking, and people working from home realized that they were sacrificing a lot by racing up the career ladder and leaving their homes very early in the morning and coming back late at night. And that really the, the, the quality of the relationships you have with people and with your home place and your uh, local neighbours and community is really of paramount importance. And that sense of balance and well-being and mental well-being, uh, I think, had a, a kind of a, a revival during the, the pandemic, particularly the early stages. And I really, really feel that that's um, it's it's not a religion, but it's a it's a spiritual realization um, of what is important in this life. Well, you're listening to Alive and Kicking on News Talk with Claire McKenna, and I'm talking to Mary Kennedy and her sister Deirdre Nicanaja about their new book, Journey to the Well, Connecting to Celtic Ways and Wisdom. We will take a break and when we come back, might get into the Celtic calendar a little bit and its significance. Alive and Kicking on News Talk with Benelin Day and Night Tablets. 24-hour cold and flu relief. Always read the label. Ask your pharmacist for advice. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking on News Talk with Claire McKenna. And I am talking to Mary Kennedy and Deirdre Nicanaja about their book, Journey to the Well, Connecting to Celtic Ways and Wisdom. So can we get into the significance then of the Celtic calendar? What the changes in seasons signified and, and how they were celebrated traditionally? Well, I suppose, you know, let's start at this particular season of Samhain, um, which was celebrated, you know, on the 1st of November around Halloween time. And so we're not long kind of having passed that threshold. And 
at that time, what was, you know, I suppose important was the idea that the, there was a thin veil between this world and the other world. It's lovely on the island here and it's still celebrated where not just children, but adults would also dress up and the um, doors were left open in the houses. And the idea was that the spirits were free to roam. So what it was, it was in a way like a healthy attitude to this life and to the afterlife. And it is, you know, crossing over into the month of November um, is that remembering of souls. We have it in the um, Catholic Church as well, All Saints, All Souls. Um, that kind of, you know, kind of really getting ready to step into the darkness. And um, when you kind of look at the Celtic calendar and it's beginning at that time, it's inviting us to recognize that it's okay during this season to stop, to rest, to reflect. And it's almost like recognizing, okay, there is a darkness, but underneath the soil, new seeds are beginning to rustle, beginning to move. So it's like, in some ways, it's, it's real permission to not necessarily be um, expecting the same of ourselves um, at that time. The earth rests, we're invited to rest too. And then to move on when we go over into Imbolog, um, crossing that threshold, which is Bridget's day. And Bridget, you know, Mary, would you like to kind of talk about Bridget, that whole sense of her heralding spring and coming in, you know, as the goddess of the land. And mm -hmm. what we tried to do through the each of the seasons was to represent that by uh, the divine or the, the feminine. So the hag in, in the time of Samhain, then moving into the young bride, Bridget, then into the full life, the full goddess, and then kind of moving into the other season as well. But it's just, I think, the naturalness mm -hmm. of those seasons and, you know, reflecting it back into, you know, the seasons that we go through ourselves as well, that there are times that are dark, there are times that are full of light, and there are times to maybe take, you know, as Mary's kind of saying, to reflect on, you know, what we've been through. But Bridget was very important going through each of the seasons. Would you agree, Mary? Um, yeah, and the, the lovely thing that we have now is that uh, St. Bridget's Day is going to be a national holiday, and that is just so fitting because she was... Um, an iconic woman and she kind of uh, we were talking about religion earlier she was um, a, a goddess before she became a Christian saint and the the um, the significance of her in the in the connection to the land and also in the connection to other people um, is is absolutely huge and one of the things that we um, wanted to achieve was to to kind of structure the book around the the Celtic calendar um, and Deirdre described Samhain in detail there, but uh, and then to bring it into the present day, the traditions are there, and to kind of relate it to our experiences of the Samhain, the darkness of the pandemic. And we've both written about the, the hard parts, and I, I hope that people will read that and relate to it and say, okay, well, I found it very difficult as well. Um, but the good news is that there's a there is light at the end of the tunnel with Imbolg, and then the the kind of the the color and the the um, vivacity of Bialkana. But it's very important that we have the traditional um, calendar and the, its its import in our lives, and then the uh, the way we have used it to make a, a parallel 
with the way we have lived our lives during this pandemic. It, it is kind of a, um, a marking what we've been through and what we can look forward to. And it, it has been very difficult and we have done very well. Um, and I think we should, you know, applaud ourselves for having gone through it and looking at going out the other side. We also talk about people who have been less fortunate and the, the awfulness which we, we talked about of people who couldn't visit uh, relatives in residential homes, who lost loved ones uh, while they were unable to visit them and who couldn't then mourn them properly. Um, it's, uh, it's, it, that's all part of, you know, the, the, the Celtic Samhain experience as well. Yeah. And as you say, it's always darkest before the dawn that sometimes we don't know when that dawn is coming. But it's like when we look at the trees in the middle of winter and they look dead, but mm. cut to the summer and they're blooming again. It, it does mm. happen and it's all a cycle. And I think while we've kept many of the traditions throughout the seasons, a lot of them have got quite commercial and that's fine in a sense. But we tend to get so caught up in that. And I think that's why after the summer you roll straight into Halloween and that's quite full on. And now it's all systems go for, for Christmas and we get yeah, spat out the other side into cold January, February, and people feel really down instead of looking at it as a time to rest, mm -hmm. to reflect, you know, sometimes we, we forget about those sides of things and that spirituality and what can that can mean for our own spirit and how important it is that we go through all of that. Well, I found it very difficult. Um, I've spoken about it in the book and also um, talking to other people. When we, when we um, uh, started on this project, um, it was the, the, the beginning of the third lockdown and um, we, we uh, our modus operandi was Deirdre was on the island and I was in my home in Dublin and we we connected um, every Monday morning via Zoom and uh, it took me a long time to settle into being able to do this. I, um, I found the uh, the, the January and February, as you have described, Claire, very, very dark, very uh, grim and felt quite low in myself. Um, and it took me a while. And I am thankful for uh, the encouragement of Deirdre and also of Kira Considine, who was our editor, uh, to, to actually, you know, be able, honestly be able to formulate thoughts and sentences and to... Um, make sense of what was happening. Um, people spoke about brain fog and I really felt, yes, I know what you mean. It was so difficult. And then when you get into it, when I did kind of get into it and we had a, a kind of a rhythm, um, it was just such a, um, a joy and a satisfaction to, to be able to, uh, to kind of be productive during a very difficult time. Yeah, and I, I, I think during all of that, we kept wanting to get back to normal or I kind of identified with it when I was pregnant. I kept saying when I get back to myself when I'm not pregnant anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think through the pandemic and, and, and through that experience, you realize you never really go back to who you were mm -hmm. before, but you've had these life lessons along the way that have have, have marked you and, and made you stronger somehow. And I think that's the lesson of the seasons, isn't it? It is. And I think, you know, to be able to you know, recognize uh, the different stages and the different transitions you described it there in terms of, you know, the birth and, you know, the birth of a new child or the loss of somebody 
it's very simple, I think, what we were trying to do is just, you know, to recognize that these are really significant times and let's not lose the significance. So like even in the Samhain time, if you look at, you know, in the, in the heart of the darkness, Christmas comes in, Advent comes in. So you have the arrival of light. But like very often, you know, kind of at that time, just even to be able to light a candle, maybe a Christmas time to remember those who aren't with us any longer. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, people being invited to create their own simple ritual from their story. Like when Mary was talking about the brain fog and not being able to kind of make sense of it, it was just like, well, let's see, can we get that into the book? So yeah. there's people who experience the brain fog know that's okay. It's okay to experience that. And it's okay to know that that'll pass. And so it's like, you know, it's that that whole thing of recognizing, you know, if we kind of journey through the different seasons um, with a sense of it's OK and it's normal to feel this way, then it's very empowering. And, you know, if you think of, you know, the fact that the whole world has experienced this pandemic. So to be mm -hmm. able to kind of return to the well of our Celtic spirituality and find traditions and find ways of nourishing and healing ourselves. In the aftermath of that, I think it's only a good thing. Yeah, and it gives strength. And you realise the support out there and that people are journeying together. Um, I, I think it's, uh, I, I, I hope it's very uplifting for people as well. Well, it's a beautiful book, especially to have worked on it as two sisters. Um, it's gorgeous. It's full of personal insight as well as historical insight um, into the traditions that make us who we are. It's called yeah. Journey to the Well, Connecting to Celtic Ways and Wisdom. Mary Kennedy and Deirdre Nicanaja, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Claire. Thank you. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, John Fardy, and to Jojo Cordoza, who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week.